Have you ever been intimidated? <laughs> Intimidation. Is this real or what? I mean, you go to the gym and there's that person on the treadmill that's like sprinting and they've been doing it for 30 minutes. Where are they going? This is intimidating. Not to mention that weight that you never thought was touched, but then here they are curling it or whatever the thing. Or how about for you young people on the, on the field or in the basketball court, you thought you were a pretty good player and then somebody comes up and just really does some moves that you didn't even know where those came from. It's intimidating, right? Isn't there always somebody better than you? Absolutely, and it's intimidating. Some of you brought food for potluck. You come in and you thought you had a nice dish, but then there's some salad that's just like a work of art or something. And you're like, that's intimidating. I just have this little, let's just cover it up. I don't want people to know what I brought. Maybe it's a job that you have to do that's intimidating or a project that's overwhelming. Uh, I know when we have elders meeting, I oftentimes will pull up with my Toyota 4Runner four-wheel drive. It's my truck until Bryce Wilkie pulls up. <laughs> And he's too kind. He's never said it. But I think the same thing every time. That's not a truck. This is a truck. Yeah. I remember the first time I met Elizabeth. She was beautiful. That's intimidating. I thought I knew what I was going to say. Intimidation. Does intimidation ever impact the church? Does it ever impact the Seventh-day Adventist church? And you might be saying, well, what do you mean? There's been a trend for some time to build your church for the unchurched, meaning those people out there, that we need to do everything that we can to be what they want us to be. We have to be friendly enough, our, our building has to be just right and all these things, but there's other pressures too. You're honestly not going to attract people to your local church using those methods, right? Like, you have to be up and coming. You have to have the music that is supercharged. You have to have the praise teams that are almost professional. You need to have strobe lights, smoke machines. I've been in places like that before. You have to have, and you know, the list goes on. I've, I've heard of churches that are out in the lobby. They're serving coffee and donuts. You know, and, and the list goes on of things that churches are doing. And so it can be rather intimidating sometimes. You're just... Doing that kind of church over there, that's never going to attract anybody. Have you ever thought that maybe or felt that way? Sometimes, I remember one church I pastored, the outside looked so bad, it looked like it was condemned. And people were just embarrassed to invite people to their church because the reaction was like, oh, you actually have services in there. Until we redid the front and it wasn't quite so intimidating, they would invite people in. I've heard of churches that just to get numbers have video games for the youth on Wednesday nights. Is that church? Are we really helping these young people in some way? To be honest, I'm concerned, and maybe you are too, of some of the methods that are being used under this idea of church growth, reaching the unchurched. And maybe it will help them for a time, because it's novel, even though most of those things aren't very novel anymore. But is that really going to bring people to the gospel, to Christ? Another thing that you hear is that churches are too doctrinally heavy. If we're going to attract the unchurched, we need to have lighter messages, happier messages. 
always cheerful messages. You know, love and grace. And next week it will be about grace and love. And the week after that, we'll do a, a few messages on grace and some more on love. And that's how we will attract the unchurched. Have you ever heard things like that? Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, knows the Great Commission, what Jesus said right before uh, his ascension. And we don't see any coffee and donuts here, but let's read it. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. All power. Jesus is saying to his disciples, the power of the Holy Spirit that transforms lives. This power has been given to me. All authority is given to me. Thus, in the power of the Holy Spirit, what are we to do? What are you to do? What am I to do? It says, go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. There is teaching to take place before baptism, right? Your version might say, make disciples. And how do you make disciples? There's an element of teaching. There are both fine translations. And then it says further, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Teach them, Jesus says. That seems to me like doctrine. And you really can't separate doctrine from Jesus and Jesus from doctrine. Doctrines are simply principles of divine truth that Jesus has revealed to us through his words written down for us in Scripture. So think about it. Jesus has a lot to say about salvation. That's the doctrine of salvation. Jesus has a lot to say about himself. That's the doctrine of Christ, his divinity. Jesus has a lot to say about the second coming of Christ. That's the doctrine of the soon return of Christ. Jesus has a lot about the Sabbath, a lot about the resurrection, a lot about marriage and other doctrines. And those teachings are doctrines. Doctrine is not a bad word. It's a good thing. It's something Jesus wants us to know, to understand, and also to pass along, to teach. Some might define it this way. Doctrines are the Holy Spirit's divinely inspired truths that give substance to faith and give substance to religion. What does it mean to say we accept Jesus? Is this some mystical, ethereal Christ that simply says, go love everybody? Certainly love is important in the Christian faith. Certainly relationships are important. But doctrines give structure to the Christian faith. Doctrines are the teachings of Christ and how Christians are to live and what Christians are to believe, how we relate to one another and life circumstances. And so that's not certainly a bad thing. But some still are hammering that we need to get away from doctrine. We're gonna turn secular people off, they say. Therefore, we need some kind of entertainment model you know, the world is really good at entertainment these days. Have you noticed? I don't know what I could do up here to entertain in such a way that would compete with the world. I don't know how I could do it. You know, you can put st strobe lights and smoke machines. I could do backflips. I could talk while I'm being back and forth on cables and whatever else. Still not competing, right? You're like, nice try. But I got news for you as well. The world can't compete 
with what we have in Scripture. Can't do it. So if we're going to use an entertainment model, why are we trying to compete with something that we can't when we have something that the world can't compete with? Let's use and play to our strengths, not somehow think that we're going to keep up with the Joneses in this entertainment model. The other thing I think is interesting is every now and then there's a study that comes out that turns conventional wisdom up on its head or sometimes will prove scripture to be true or spirit of prophecy or whatever the case. And that is the case with uh, Tom Rainer. He wrote this book, Surprising Insights from the Unchurched and Proven Ways to Reach Them. And Christianity Today has an article and so on. And so who is Tom Rainer? Well, he is a researcher. He's the founder of the Billy Graham School of Missions and Evangelism and Church Growth. Uh, at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. So that's kind of his background, if you will. But he also has done some detailed research. They took 576 churches and began looking at this unchurched people group. But his uh, take on things were quite different from the outset. And here's why. So many uh, studies on the unchurched is to essentially... Uh, for Pastor Jeff and I to go up to Asheville and ask anybody that we find on the street, in Walmart, anywhere, and say, what would it take to bring you to church? Now think about that. What kind of responses might we get? I mean, it could be anything and everything, right? Stop preaching to us so much. Stop asking for money. Stop doing this. Stop doing that. We want pretty girls in church. I mean, any, any answer would be okay. And we would write it down. We'd say, oh, that's good. That's good. And we come back to our think tank. We need more pretty girls. Is that according to what we need to be? What we are to do? And so his whole model was different. He says, no, we're asking the wrong people. Who we need to be asking are the people that are now in church that not too long ago were unchurched. And ask them, what made the difference in bringing you to church? Because let's face it, there's a whole swath of society that has no interest and never will have an interest in church. So we don't need to try and tailor what we do here to essentially make it more worldly. But we need to ask the people that are in church now what made the difference. And so that was really the, the real changing point of his research. His study came up with some things. One of the myths here is the church name was crucial to bringing in the unchurched. And so for a long time, we got to change our name. And some didn't like the denominational name because that would be a hindrance. And so we're going to go with something more generic, right? We're going to be the bridge. We're going to be the lighthouse. We're going to be the rock. You know, and you have these things. And you don't know what, affili what they're affiliated with and so on. That's kind of the idea. Do you know what he found out? Total myth. The reality, the name of the church had almost no influence on the unchurched. Whether you're Wesleyan, whether you're Seventh-day Adventist, whether you're Baptist. In fact, when they asked this question of people, there was this kind of awkward silence like, I'm confused, what do you mean? Well, did the name of the church? Nope, didn't make any difference to us. That had nothing to do with why we were there. Myth, another myth, deep spiritual truths and church language confuse and intimidate the unchurched. So we need to tone it down. We need to use, you know, unchurched language. We don't want to get too much into the weeds on our jargon. He found that to be a myth as well. Here's the truth that he found. Deeply spiritual truths do not keep the unchurched away. He gave some examples. Susan M. 
living in the Cleveland area was unchurched until a life crisis caused her to seek God. In an interview with Susan, she says this, Do you know what frustrated me most when I started visiting churches? So imagine this. Susan is having some life crisis. I don't know what it is. She's thinking, I need to get back to God, and she's visiting churches, and one church after another, after another, after another, and she's getting frustrated. Why is she getting frustrated? She said, I had a deep desire to understand the Bible and hear in-depth preaching and teaching, but most of the preaching was so watered down, it was insulting to my intelligence. I went to one church where the message was on fear. I was eager to hear what the Bible had to say on that subject uh, and describe, because it described my state of mind, I want to know what the Bible had to say about it. But when the preacher presented, I was disappointed. It was more of a pop psychology message, and the biblical view was never explained, and Bible texts were hardly even mentioned. Another individual, Jennifer Kay from Minnesota. She says, I've watched... CNBC, a business cable network for years since I follow my investments closely. She remembers the first time she watched the program. They use language that contains strange phrases like stock splits and P.E. ratios and NASDAQ. Sometimes they explain them. Other times I had to look them up, she said. But I enjoyed the learning experience. She says, now that I've joined the church, I tell the church staff and my pastors, use meaty language and teaching because it attracts the unchurched. Isn't that interesting? Pastor, I've been in churches that have told me this very thing. Pastor, I don't want you to talk about the three angels' messages. Don't mention that Jesus is interceding in the heavenly sanctuary. Don't make such a big deal about the Sabbath. Or the state of the dead, that will just scare them off. We want to be mainstream. Mercy. This study seems to say the opposite. Quoting Tom Rainer in his book, What really matters is a deeply spiritual pastor who loves his people and is proclaiming the word of God. Continuing here, it says, 91% of the unchurched who we interviewed said, that's a big number, 91%. We came to this particular church because of the biblical preaching of the pastor. Notice it doesn't say the pastor. Well, our pastor is charismatic. Well, our pastor is this, our pastor is that. It says the biblical preaching of the pastor. And I don't even think I have this quote on here, but, but one guy even confessed, you know, our pastor is not even that great of a preacher. And y'all can say, amen. But he teaches from the word of God. He believes in evangelism and Bible studies and our church is growing. And I say, praise the Lord. The reality is that the unchurched are attracted to deep biblical teaching and preaching. Nine out of ten affirm giving the straight truth from scripture. That's essentially what our evangelistic meetings are going to be. Straight biblical presentations of truth. So we don't need to be intimidated that somehow it's going to be too heavy, too hard for them to comprehend. It's going to scare them off. No, it's going to be exactly what they're looking for because they've tried everything else. They've listened to everything else. They've they listened to that kind of music already and everything. They're looking for something different. They're looking for only what God can give them. 88% said they came because the church stood for something. It had doctrinal integrity. 
2 Timothy 3.16, it says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And I like this one here too. I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. Friends, God calls us to uplift the Word of God. Uplift Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't need to entertain to attract people. The world has plenty of entertainment. What it doesn't have is substance, a biblical foundation. And we see a crisis in this country for that as well. Another myth, contemporary churches with great praise teams are the churches that are growing. Nope, not true. What's the truth? The churches that were growing seem to use traditional outreach programs or methods. I find that word interesting, traditional. A lot of people think lame. No, traditional. In fact, this is the one that surprised Tom Rainer the most. What churches were growing? They were praying for souls in the community, sharing the word of God regularly. They were passing out literature. They were knocking on doors. They were having Bible studies. One of the persons even said, because I was listening to this audio book some this week, was saying, I was honestly rather offended that I had Christian friends that never spoke about Christ or their faith to me. And I thought, if, if you really love what you have, how come you don't want to share with me? Goes on to say they were holding seminars in their churches, evangelistic meetings, and these churches were growing. Friends, what we be- believe affects how we behave. Often churches don't grow because they just don't think it's possible. That's too hard. The world will not respond. But friends, the opposite is true. Yes, the culture is strong, but our God is stronger. Yes, secularism is on the rise, but so is a lack of identity and anxiety and depression. People are more dissatisfied now than they have ever been before, which should mean that this could be our greatest turnout that we've ever had before. They're looking for purpose, for meaning, for peace of mind, for love, and God is the answer to all of those things. In Christ, we have purpose. In Christ, we have assurance. In Christ, we're more than a mere blip on the radar of time, but we are destined to do great things for God. Destined to bring a dying world to a knowledge of the truth. That's what we've been raised for. Another myth, the unchurched cannot be reached by personal and direct evangelism. Not true. Nearly two-thirds of formerly unchurched said their primary exposure to the gospel came from personal sharing of the Bible or invitations to truth-filled presentations. Two-thirds. Is that 100%? No. Is somebody going to tell you, I'm not interested? Yes. But some will say, yeah. I'll come. And that's what's so amazing. And I love, Pastor Harper, you sharing these, these pictures, these individuals, these real-life stories of people that we thought not going to happen. And then God makes it happen. Where's our faith? I like this as well. It's not a matter of receptivity. It's a matter of obedience to the command that Jesus gave when he said, go out and preach the gospel. Think about that. It's not about receptivity. It's about obedience. Jesus said to go. What if they say no? God says, that's on me. Don't worry about that. You just go. You be faithful and do what I've asked you to do. Here's another individual. These are not necessarily new ideas. This is Dean M. Kelly. This dates back to 1972. I was barely a product of the 70s, born in 79. The book is Why Conservative Churches Are Growing. 
And Mark Finley tells a story of back in the 80s when he was attending some uh, seminars and classes at Andrews University in Bering Springs. They invited Dean Kelly to be one of the speakers on church growth, a church growth seminar. And uh, at that time, Dean Kelly was the Associate Secretary of the World Council of Churches. But you also need to know that at that time, the World Council of Churches was dying. Over a period of 15 years or so, the Methodist Church had lost 5,000 men, teenagers, young adults, and most liberal churches at that time were dying. And so he was coming to represent them in the 80s, and he says, I'll never forget how he began his lecture. He said this, you know, you might wonder why I was invited to this church growth seminar. He said, I'm the Associate Secretary of the World Council of Churches, and my churches that I represent, the main liberal churches are dying. And he mentioned his book and so on, but he says, I want to tell you how the Seventh-day Adventist Church can stop growing. And Pastor Finley says, I sat up in my seat. I'm like, what is this guy going to share? And he went over point by point. He says, you know what? Just make your standards on health very light fare. Don't worry about all this business of coffee and meat and vegetarianism. Just relegate that to the graveyard. He says, you won't be very distinct at all. He said the Sabbath. Well, sure, keep the Sabbath as kind of a social day that people come. But don't worry about eating out at restaurants on Sabbath. If you want to die like the rest of us, reduce your standards. As far as prophecy is concerned, stop preaching prophecy. Because, I mean, you might offend some people. Do you hear what he's saying? If you lose your distinctiveness, if you lose what brought you into existence, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, people of God, part of a divine movement of destiny, raised up by God to prepare a world for the coming of Christ, if you lose that, he was saying you'll die like the rest of us. Friends, do you believe that? That we've been raised up by God to proclaim the eternal, everlasting message outlined in Revelation chapter 14? Verse 6 and following, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. We have an urgent message to go to the ends of the earth with this everlasting gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ. And it changes lives, friends. It transforms us. And it's to go around the globe and continue saying with a loud voice, fear God. That's not to be afraid of God. It's to reverence or respect or live your life in reference to God. Give glory to Him in your lifestyle and what you eat, what you drink, in everything you do because the hour of His judgment has come. Adventists have been raised up uniquely by God to proclaim a judgment hour message, to prepare a world for the coming of Jesus and to worship Him that made heaven, earth, the sea, and the springs of water. In an age of evolution... It's a call to worship the Creator on the Sabbath day. And then continuing, another angel followed and said, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. We've also been raised up to say Babylon is fallen. That the world we live in, the religious world, the apostate religion, is fallen. It's drifted from God's Word. And then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand. Yes, we've been raised up to warn the world of the mark of the beast. A conflict coming over the law of God and to lead men back and women back to keeping the commandments of God, including the Bible Sabbath, in contrast to the counterfeit Sabbath of Sunday worship. 
And so Dean Kelly is warning us. I don't even think he's living anymore. But he's warning us, not a Seventh-day Adventist. If you want the church to stop growing, you want the church to die and disintegrate, lose your uniqueness. Soft pedal your identity. Why God brought you up in the final hours of earth's history. I'm afraid even within the Adventist church, we do have this identity crisis. Among our young people, among our youth. Why are we here? What is our existence? Are we just another ism in the phone book? Or are we an end-time people with an end-time message to prepare for the coming of Jesus? In his book, this old-school book, he says, conservative churches holding to seemingly out-modeled theology and making strict demands on their members have equaled or surpassed in growth the early percentage increases of the nation's population. It's the conservative churches. It goes on, the popular idea is contrary to that. If you want to succeed, you have to be reasonable, rational, courteous, responsible, restrained, receptive to outside criticism. If you want to succeed, the popular idea is to have a good image in the world with the cultural elites, we could say. If you want to succeed, be democratic and gentle, be cooperative with other religions, try to meet common goals. Don't be too dogmatic or judgmental in your moralism. This idea that your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. He says, no, go along with the popular culture. Don't be obsessed with doctrinal purity. Then he drops this bombshell. These expectations are a recipe for the failure of the religious enterprise and arise from a mistaken view of what success in religion is and how it should be fostered and measured. He says that's a recipe for failure. Yet the pressure still exists and people are still buying in and our churches are becoming more and more empty. In fact, right here, just, was it last week, two weeks ago, somebody gave me something from Time News, our local newspaper. Here we go. When churches become concert halls, clubs, and cafes. Why? Because nobody's coming to meet in them anymore. They've become so much like the world, there's nothing different. In fact, one of these churches mentioned is a church on Sunday, and it's a theater the rest of the week. And we wonder why they're empty. Because they have no uniqueness. They're not standing for anything, and they're certainly not preaching from God's Word. I shouldn't say they're not, but it's a soft message. Strong religious movements make demands of their members in terms of both belief and behavior. These churches demand adherence to highly defined doctrines and are to be received, believed, and taught without compromise. Does that mean we can we beat them over the head? No. Can we teach the truth in love? I believe so. Is it up to their choice? It is. But that doesn't mean we hide it. We could make a great argument that that's not loving to hide truth they need to know. They also understand themselves to be separate from the larger secular culture. He's saying, look, don't compromise. That's the recipe for failure. Liberal churches have done that. They've gone and accepted the LGBT community with arms wide open. Now, should we be accepting of all people? Certainly. Should we reach out with kindness to all people? Absolutely. But friends, the Word of God is the Word of God. And the Word of God speaks and says that God created male and female. Sin's brokenness has distorted that. But we are to call men and women back to the biblical idea that marriage is between one man and one woman, not between two men and not between two women. Or any other mix. I mean, now that you've got four, seven, whatever you want, it doesn't matter. No, sin's brokenness has distorted all of that. But the brokenness of sin can be counteracted by the power of the gospel and the living Christ. You know, there are two uh, institutions that 
come over from Eden and the devils attacked each one. The Sabbath that reminds us that God is the creator of all things and marriage that reminds us that only human beings created in the image of God can procreate intelligent human beings in the image of God. And the devil hates the Sabbath because it reminds him of the creator and he hates marriage because it also reminds him of the creator. And he can't procreate and so the devil's attacked Sabbath, he's attacked marriage, and they both come from the Garden of Eden. And the mainline denominations continue to exist, but they're diminishing, if you haven't noticed. Statistically, they're diminishing. Not so with the Adventist church, but I believe that statistic should be higher than it is. And I wonder if it's because we're not being faithful in our duty to presenting the Word of God. Yes, in a loving, caring way, but God's Word is God's Word. It says the mainline denominations will continue to exist on a diminishing scale, perhaps for centuries, and will continue to supply some people with a dilute, demanding, sorry, undemanding form of meaning, which maybe all these people want. This is the road to a decaying Christian church in America. Sounds prophetic, coming from 1972. But if you want the church to grow, open the Word of God. Seventh-day Adventists are positioned today to speak light in a world of darkness. To go against the grain of culture. To prepare people for the coming of Jesus Christ. But we haven't just been called to merely grow churches. We've been called to grow disciples. Disciples who will be anchored in Christ. Disciples who will be anchored in the word of God. Disciples who will prepare men and women for the coming of Christ. New York Times had an opinion piece called Creed or Chaos back in... April 2011, I'm not sure if they'd still publish this today, but in this article, David Brooks, he talks about how in America, people like to be spiritual but not doctrinal, pluralistic but not exclusive, and it offers the tools for serving the greater good, but it's not marred with intolerant theological judgments. That's what he says. And then he goes on to say this, and I'm quoting now, there's a problem with this, vague, uplifting, non-doctrinal religiosity doesn't actually last. The religions that grow, sucker, and motivate people to perform heroic acts of service are usually theologically rigorous, arduous in practice, and definite in their convictions about what's true and what's false. Again, this is a non avenus Opinion piece. It says, truth, biblical truth, provides believers with a map of reality. It allows believers to examine the world intellectually as well as emotionally and rigorous codes of conduct and behavior allow people to build character. Are we talking about building character in the New York Times? Allow people to build character and regular acts of self-discipline that can lay the foundation for extraordinary acts of self-control when it counts most. Interesting. Friends, Jesus has not raised up, raised us up in this, what I believe, final generation to be a group of people trying to please the world. If we do that, we'll simply evaporate and be conformed to the culture. But rather, he's raised up a group of people that love Jesus with all their hearts, that are saved by the grace of God and not by human works, that are filled with the righteousness of Christ, that are transformed by the grace of Christ, that listen to the echo of Paul's words. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. He's saying, I beseech you, I urge you, I beg you, essentially, is the words there. And the word for bodies, that is summa. It means the totality of your being. 
So it's not just your physical body. It's not just your mind, your heart, your emotions, your bodies. It's everything that you are. I beseech you, I beg you, present all that you are as a living sacrifice, acceptable to God. This is your reasonable, excuse me, reasonable service. And then it says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Philip's translation says it this way, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. God has raised up an end time people that will not be squeezed into that mold. Don't limit God. Don't limit his ability to transform a life. You're an example of a life transformed. I hope. Why don't you reach out? Tell them they're missing something. You remember that story of the two demoniacs? Everybody avoided them. They were a problem. They were a menace. Nothing can be done until Jesus totally changes their lives. And we read there in Matthew's account, and then they're clothed and in their right mind. And not only that, he sends them as missionaries. Don't say it can't happen. You've seen the caterpillar, and then it turns to a beautiful butterfly. How does that happen? That's a mystery that we've been studying about in our Sabbath school lesson. How does this happen? I don't know. It's some mystery of God. How does this tiny seed that I plant in the ground, it's not coming up, it's not coming up, it's not coming up, it's coming up! Mystery of God. God is the God of transformations, miraculous transformations. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become what? New. Friends, do you believe God still works miracles today? Do you believe he can still perform complete transformation of people's lives today, then let's extend an invitation. Let's invite people to come, to come to the meetings, to come to a Bible study, to whatever the case may be, but have spiritual conversations and pray, bathe the whole thing in prayer and say, Lord, do something I can't do. Convict their heart. Draw them to you. Give them a longing for the truth and may their lives be changed. So it's not a matter of receptivity, it's a matter of obedience. He says, go.